Hello there, my name is Kathleen and this is the Osborne Tapes, the re-release of the Analyst Corner podcast with Debbie Osborne. Today's episode is all about criminal intelligence and the military and features Dr. Eugene Matthews, a leader in the education of criminal intelligence analysis. Dr. Matthews led the initial development and implementation of the U.S. Army Police Intelligence Operation, PIO Doctrine, and he is currently an associate professor at Park University and has been awarded for creating a collaborative learning environment for students to explore emerging tech and learning. Debbie and Dr. Matthews discuss how to enhance and build infrastructure that supports law enforcement and analysts within their own systems. So in the spirit of learning and education, make sure you check out the episode notes for links and resources regarding training tools like criminal intelligence manuals for analysts and the training calendar for the National Criminal Intelligence Resource Center. Now let's get into today's episode. Today's topic is what I believe is the newest type of intelligence category to be defined in the military, CRIMINT, criminal intelligence. Our guest is Eugene Matthews. Mr. Matthews was, among other positions, chief of police intelligence operations in the U.S. Army and led in the initial development of the U.S. Army Police Intelligence Operation Doctrine. He designed the U.S. Army Criminal Anti-Terrorism and Police Intelligence Management Course and trained military and civilian crime analysts. He retired from the Army and is now an instructor in the criminal justice program at Lincoln University in Missouri. Hello, Matt. Thank you for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be a part of your show. Yes. Um, I recently, by chance, um, came to know you before I knew what your background was through another crime analyst, and, and I had already posted information on the police intelligence operation um, doctrine on my blog because I thought that was really an interesting development in the field of crime and intelligence analysis. But before we go on to discuss it in depth, perhaps you could just define what CRIMINT is and how, um, what other types of categories of intelligence are, are those, have acronyms in the military, and, and then we can go on from there because many of our listeners don't have a military background. Oh, absolutely. Um, first, let me begin with, of course, a disclaimer. That, you know, the views and the comments and the notions that I'm going to present are, are just my own. They're not necessarily supported or endorsed or approved. Uh, by the U.S. Army Military Police Corps or the U.S. Army Military Police School. Uh, in short, I'm speaking on my uh, own knowledge, experience, and skills rather than as a, a member of the uh, military. But I just wanted to make sure that uh, that was clarified so that you know, folks don't think that I'm uh, speaking for all, all of uh, USAMS for, for Pete's sake. And now, as far as uh, criminal intelligence is concerned, I think it's important also to recognize that criminal intelligence is really one of three uh, disciplines or underlying um, uh, support activities uh, that come under uh, the heading or might fall under the heading of uh, law enforcement intelligence uh, or law enforcement intelligence analysis. Uh, and I'll talk about criminal intelligence in just a second. We just briefly talk to uh, crime uh, analysis and then criminal investigative analysis. Other speakers, uh, other visitors that you have guests you've had uh, on your show have spoken at length uh, on uh, crime analysis. I know uh, Jerry Reckless was one of the uh, uh, guest speakers that you had, uh, or guests that you had before, and he spoke at length on uh, policing. And, and what I wanted to share with you was that a crime analysis, while it's important, uh, is just one piece of the total picture. It's more strategic. It looks more towards the historical occurrences to aid, you know, decision makers in deciding how to allocate or reallocate their resources based on the possibilities of what may occur. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have something like criminal investigative analysis. Now, these are not uh, new terms uh, in the field of uh, crime analysis or uh, criminal intelligence analysis. They are terms that have been around for a, a long time. I know that uh, Alpha Group uh, uses some of these terms and, as well as some of the other uh, major investigative organizations. Uh, but in criminal investigative analysis, you might look at uh, including things such as geographic profiling, uh, which deals with location, geospatial uh, analysis, which deals with, uh, of course, time, psychological profiling, which deals with mainly offender behavior, even victimology, uh, other forms of predictive uh, analytics. These all deal with the 
probabilities of crime or the probabilities of offender or victim behaviors. Uh, and along with those, you'd have uh, the aspects of the crime reducing conditions, those things that make it easy or make it possible for offenders to offend, whether it's the location or the accessibility to victims or maybe just recidivist behavior. And then when we focus in on criminal intelligence analysis, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Where the other two deal with uh, possibilities or probabilities, uh, criminal intelligence analysis really kind of focuses uh, in on evidence, things that you can take into a court of law, things that you might be able to bring uh, into the, the, the justice system and have it have it something be mean something meaningful uh, uh, to the overall operation. Uh, criminal investigative, or excuse me, criminal intelligence analysis focuses on trying to figure out who's doing what to whom, and uh, locking those bits and pieces in. You might do that through something like an association matrix, uh, where you're uh, correlating uh, people and or events with actions and or activities. Uh, you might use a, a link analysis chart or something along those lines. Um, and one of the things that I, I when I was uh, teaching for uh, the US Army Military Police School, one of the things that we always uh, focused our effort and, and telling our students and training our students on was that regardless of which aspect of analysis you look at or regardless of what software applications you might uh, use or, or might be employed, Real analysis, uh, real analysis is, is done right between your ears. Uh, the brain, the, uh, the uh, analyst himself or herself is the person who's actually doing the analysis. Everything else is just a visualization or reflection of what they've seen or what they perceive. Uh, and then to, now I say all that uh, to say this. The uh, uh, definition if you're looking for a definition or looking for a definition for criminal uh, intelligence or criminal intelligence analysis, you can refer to a number of resources. The uh, Interpol, for one, uh, has on their site uh, some information that, that states that uh, law enforcement has recognized criminal intelligence for more than 25 years, which is about accurate. It wasn't until June of 1992 that Interpol members and member countries agreed on their definition of criminal intelligence, and that was uh, the identification of and provision of insight and relationships between crime data and other uh, potentially relevant data with a view towards a place in judicial practice. Now, that's a, a whole mouthful of stuff uh, to say that they're looking at operational or tactical and strategic applications for gathering and collecting and uh, molding information for the use of law enforcement. If you were, if you have access to, uh, and most of the listeners do have access to the internet, they have access to it, they can refer to uh, an Army regulation, uh, 525, which is uh, available on the, uh, on the internet. The definition the Army ascribes to uh, criminal intelligence is law enforcement information derived from the analysis of information collected through investigations, forensics, crime scenes, evidentiary processes, and then it goes on. Uh, and then uh, finally, the field manual, FM 31950, is the field manual for uh, police intelligence operations, and it also ascribes pretty much that same uh, aspect. So in a nutshell, criminal intelligence is taking uh, all of these bits and pieces of data, combining them together, having analysts look at them and derive some useful meaning from is not necessarily probability or possibilities, but it's actual factual data. Uh, for example, telephone poll analysis. If you take a series of telephone calls that were made from one telephone number to another telephone number, you're not saying that this person called that person. All you're saying is that telephone number or that telephone uh, device recorded uh, has recorded calling this other telephone device. That's stuff you can take in a court. That's stuff that's irrefutable. Uh, if, you're looking at, uh, if you're looking at trying to get evidence or build evidence towards uh, an investigation or maybe refuting uh, some sort of an alibi or supporting 
uh, your investigation in that way. And that's where I think uh, criminal intelligence and criminal intelligence analysis really uh, has their strength. I hope that answers part of your question anyway. Um, yes, and, and, and so there is now that acronym. Um, so maybe you could just, is that widely accepted in the military, CRIMINT, or is that something just the Army has and does certain, you know, the police recognize that, that the military police recognize that? Well, um, the, uh, the acronym CRIMINT is becoming more widely accepted. Um, the history behind that is that the, the, the military has long used a, a number of acronyms, as, as many of our listeners are probably aware, have an acronym for just about everything or, or an abbreviation. Uh, and the various intelligence processes that were used or that are used by uh, military intelligence is where that kind of stemmed from. HUMINT, H-U-M-I-T or H-U-M-I-N-T, is uh, human intelligence, and that might be your sources, uh, your uh, informants, your uh, people who are on the ground providing you information. Uh, ELINT, which might be your electronic uh, intelligence sources, and that could be anything from electric use, uh, electrical usages uh, or uh, message trafficking that's coming back uh, and forth, SIGINT, which also deals with the signals intelligence, uh, NASINT, there's a number of other INTs, uh, intelligence sources and resources that are applied. So CRIMINT, which probably made its uh, debut in the early 90s, maybe a little bit earlier than that, but around probably the early 90s, is uh, becoming more widely accepted. Uh, one of the, the problems or challenges, I should say, uh, that the military has in general is uh, change. The military doesn't do change very quickly, uh, doesn't accept change wide, uh, skilled, very, very um, uh, easily, uh, but it does do change. It just doesn't do it uh, very quickly. So when you add in this other INT increment, the first thing is, well, what is it and uh, who does it? and whose responsibility is it to maintain it. Uh, and I know we were sharing earlier some of the history uh, that goes uh, to the development of both the police intelligence operations and uh, CRIMINT. There was some, uh, some issues or some uh, dialogue, uh, let's say, between the, the military intelligence, who was primarily responsible for uh, foreign intelligence foreign intelligence services uh, type activities, those threats to uh, our nation or those threats to uh, military or government operations from outside actors. Uh, they were the ones and, and are the ones who, are, are, who have been designated, at least by the Army, uh, for combating that particular threat. Domestically, however, that threat belongs for, uh, to the military, those folks uh, who are acting in um, a law enforcement capacity, uh, can, can gather up that information on, on U.S. citizens or collect it up and, and use it towards uh, legal purposes. Now, before I jump too far into that, I think it's also important to distinguish uh, the, the military operations, and I don't want to bore your listeners with, with too much detail, but it's important to note that within the military police corps, there are actually three entities the military police, the military police investigations, and the criminal investigations division where you have your special agents. The military police would be the equivalent of and do the same uh, functions, perform the same functions as your uh, local law enforcement, civilian law enforcement, road patrols. They're out there doing traffic investigations. They're out there doing um, misdemeanor crimes. They're enforcing the law. They're uh, making, uh, presenting a law enforcement presence they're taking care of those activities, and they're interacting with the public. The military police investigations, who are typically responsible for misdemeanor crimes up to a certain dollar amount, and that may change or it may be a process of being changed, uh, they uh, usually focus in on the long-term or the longer-term uh, investigative aspects of uh, any type of crime that affects the military and military members, uh, particularly uh, on an installation or on a uh, on government property, and that could be anything from uh, the, the typical 
property accidents, damage to, to private property, um, assaults, uh, that type of thing. And then you have your CID special agents, the Criminal Investigation Division, who are responsible for all your felony crimes. They are the equivalent to the civilian uh, FBI. Um, all of these, or all three of these entities, have a presence worldwide. Uh, wherever the military is, you will find uh, some presence, or at least some link back to one of these three entities, so they're always covered. Uh, the intelligence piece of it now, when you're looking at criminal intelligence, flows throughout all three of these uh, organizations, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, some have uh, acquainted, or uh, some have uh, uh, looked at MP, MPI, CID as three separate entities with somewhat like stovepipes that go up to uh, their respective uh, higher headquarters. I like to look at them as cylinders of excellence. It's not really so much a stovepipe as a reporting responsibility that goes to your boss or uh, to the decision makers within your uh, particular field. And sometimes uh, those that information doesn't get cross-shared. There's a variety of reasons, and, and there, uh, people can dialogue that forever as to why information may not be cross-shared. When you render it back down to the intelligence aspect of it, the crime intelligence aspect of it, the military police are first responders. The military police are the folks who are there on the ground. The military police are usually the ones who get the, uh, the first hack at, at a, a bunch of information. They enroll that information into whatever the, uh, the latest uh, report management system might be. Um, might be a simplified automated military police system, or it might be one of the other, uh, newer uh, software or applications or reporting management applications that are used by the military have been adopted. The military police investigations and then they pick it up and then carry it forward. The difference is military police, a eight-hour shift, eight to twelve, eight to 12 hour shift. Military police investigations could be uh, much longer than that. Uh, and then finally, if it's something that's in the felony range, the CID will, will pick it up. The criminal intelligence has generated the military police level might uh, be picked up and acted on by the military police investigations, or it may even find its way into uh, the CID uh, realm. Regardless, it all starts with the uh, MP patrol, typically, uh, on the ground. Now, that's not to say that military police investigations doesn't initiate uh, their own investigations or that uh, criminal investigation divisions, special agents, don't initiate uh, their own investigations. It's just to say that uh, from the criminal aspect of it, a lot of it, the majority of it, which is uh, initiated at a lower level and then is uh, cross-walked through uh, the other three systems or the other two systems. Hopefully that. Yeah. And why, so recently, though, there has been this development of a doctrine um, and that it sounds like things are becoming more institutionalized. I know my own experience. I did some training for the International Association of Crime Analysts at Fort Belvoir, the Criminal Intelligence Division. And, and so there, it seems like they're trying to, your military is trying to develop a more um, systematic and structured approach and, and sort of what I think is articulating, you know, a vision of how how we can work and be trained and do things in criminal intelligence or crime intelligence, you know, in, mm -hmm. integrating all of those. And so maybe you could tell me why that's why, as you said, it's it's been a slow change, just like in policing. I mean, policing very slow to change, even though there have been analysts since the 80s. And then with the um, with the PC being common, more people could analyze data easier, so more analysts came, and then you had crime mapping, things like that. But it's still slow to change to use use these skill sets and develop them in people and, and understand the value of doing working in new ways. Do, is there a correlation, and, and why now, and why not? Why, is, why does it seem like, from my perspective, that things are gelling right now, and you're, you're actually coming, there, there seems to be, <clears throat> more of a policy for it. Well, I think uh, part of that is uh, just a sequence of events. Uh, shortly after 9-11, the interest level in being able to uh, collect, uh, analyze, and disseminate information very quickly rose. Uh, there was, uh, of course, some, uh, some 
mishaps that, that folks recognized as to why there were some barriers, some boundaries, some isolated, uh, some isolationism, where that information that could have been used by many wasn't used by any because the folks who had it weren't able to share it out. The military has, the U.S. Army anyway, has a, a unique, um, a somewhat unique aspect to it with regard to law enforcement practices. Whether you're in the state of Missouri or you're in the state of Maine or you're overseas or, uh, or anywhere else in the lower 48, a military police report is going to read very, very similar. Uh, DA Form 3975, which might be the military police report for the Army, is going to have the same Block 10 uh, biographical information on your subject or your suspect. It's going to have the same um, generic information on victims and witnesses, and you're going to have a place for your narrative, no matter where you go. Once that, uh, since that is the, the norm, and since that has been, um, uh, has, has been standardized for so many years, it just makes sense to be able to crosswalk information uh, throughout. Once you realize, and I think that's probably one of the, the bigger issues, the decision makers, those who uh, either hold the purse screens or account the beings, uh, make the decision or come to the determination that we need to be able to uh, speak very quickly, very clearly, very articulately to our other entities within the military police corps and throughout the Army, that's when you saw a little bit more uh, synergy uh, coming together. Uh, one of the many issues or many challenges still ahead is how do you do that uh, when there's any sort of confidentiality uh, that's required uh, from the CID level? You may have something that's at uh, a classification that uh, is beyond that of one of the other agencies. Uh, or one of the other entities. One of the things that we found throughout, and I think many of our civilian law enforcement personnel have found that as well, is that although bureaucracy and the red tape and the regulations and the rules may say that you can't do it under these conditions, there's almost always a way around or a way through or a way beyond the red tape. If you want the information, there is almost always a way that you can get it without compromising um, any of the rules and regulations. And I think the, the move has been uh, slow, slow in coming, but the move has been to find our, our pass-throughs, our gateways through that. How do we work? Uh, no is the easy answer. How do we get to yes? How do we work through this uh, longstanding traditional uh, mindset or this longstanding uh, traditional Mentality uh, or, or method of doing things, and how do we get to how do we get to the yes? You've got some information, and I'd like to get it. How do I get to that? We may have, uh, and and in many cases, do have civilian law enforcement agencies in and throughout our military installations. They have a wealth of information. Maybe they don't have it collated the same. They don't call it the same thing, uh, but that information is still just as valuable, not more so. Than uh, some of the information that you get on the installation. Not all of our military members live, reside, and stay on their installations. Quite often, they travel off, and some of the information, uh, some of the activities that they're involved in, uh, are captured by the civilian uh, sector. And if you have a uh, a means, a measure, a method of gathering or collecting the information up through our law enforcement agencies it makes life a whole lot easier. Your uh, folks who are committing crimes or are participating in illegal activities off the installation, uh, if that's noted and that's reported back through the uh, channels for military law enforcement, actually be taken. And at the end of the day, what counts is putting the bad guy in jail, uh, stopping the criminal activity, uh, protecting our, our, our resources, uh, shoring up our infrastructure, Enforcing the law. Uh, justice is justice no matter what color your uniform is. Yes, and, and so when you say protecting your resources, I'm just thinking about theft from, from military installations. But I also think this is a good time perhaps to talk about that word intelligence. And because some of our listeners 
or maybe a few, might be thinking, well, we don't want the military collecting intelligence in our communities, but we're not. We're talking about just crime, be, criminal behavior, that and 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 the types of information that aren't really analyzed necessarily in any systematic way. That are they're, they're data that exist in systems. Like as you said, you've had these consistent reporting mechanisms for years, but how can you take advantage and analyze with the data you already have about criminal activity? It's not about spying, correct? Right. Right, and, and uh, I think that's. I'm glad you brought that up because it, you're, you're right. It's not about uh, sending either your military members or anybody else who's involved in uh, foreign intelligence service type activities into spying. We're focused really on crime and reducing crime. The crime is reduced off an installation affects the crime that uh, occurs on an installation. The crime that is uh, uh, reduced on an installation also, uh, we believe, uh, uh, leads off to the, the off installation. Um, uh, environment. The information that might be collected or at least assimilated or uh, shared from our uh, civilian law enforcement agencies might be something very, very specific, but it's only specific to that particular uh, criminal, that criminal offender, and that's only if there's some sort of law enforcement nexus that deals with the military. Uh, for example, somebody who uh, resides on a military installation, be they uh, active duty service member or a family member or a uh, government service civilian or a contractor or somebody else who, whose uh, home base is the military. They may, uh, at times you may find some bad actors who go off the installation to commit crimes, uh, leave all kinds of evidence, forensic type evidence or uh, uh, other type of pedigree evidence out there available for the local law enforcement to collect up and certainly they'll collect it up. If that's collected, and particularly on the unsubs, if they don't have a, a subject, an unknown subject, uh, they may share that with the military to find out, hey, if do you have somebody who meets this description, or we have information that leads us to believe that this may be a military member or a person assigned to or part of uh, your, your installation, is there a way to uh, check this information out or to validate this information? Can we work uh, in conjunction? There are a host of, of uh, uh, regulations that allow for the, collabor uh, the collaboration between law enforcement agencies, both at the military, uh, between the military and the civilian law enforcement agencies, without to, to uh, combat that uh, uh, posse comitatus, which, which that's a whole different subject, posse comitatus, uh, the, the effects of posse and using military force, civilian law. It, it goes way into more detail than that. It's really just too simple an, an explanation. But the information that is collected off installation uh, could be shared with uh, your military components in an effort to uh, eradicate crime. We used to do that all the time when I was working with the uh, drug suppression teams in Colorado and also in Kansas and even overseas in Korea. Uh, we would collaborate often with uh, civilian counterparts on those types of drugs because we recognize, the civilian recognize that uh, illegal trafficking is bad. It's bad for the community. It's illegal. It's, uh, it, it is a law, um, of course, a violation of law, and it impacts every other aspect of a community. It impacts uh, the rate of crime, the rate of uh, uh, ancillary crimes that might occur, it depreciates, in some cases, property value because of the activities that, that uh, continues to go on. Uh, it raises uh, or increases the likelihood of additional type of, uh, of troubles or issues offenses uh, coming into a particular neighborhood. If you follow the broken windows uh, theorem, uh, then, then you could see how that could be, or how uh, drug crime, uh, drug trafficking, and that type of crime could impact areas, neighborhoods, and uh, communities. The military and the civilian law enforcement recognize that. Uh, both the decision makers, policy makers, uh, those, who are in, uh, those who are deeply involved in that. And so taking, if, if, to, to continue to use some uh, old terminology, taking the war on drugs uh, into uh, to, to that level, you may uh, have some collaboration. There may be some um, 
work groups. Uh, of course, there uh, uh, may be some uh, some teaming efforts that that are uh, uh, or, or task force that are brought together uh, to where the focus really isn't on the individual, but on the activity the individual is doing and how it impacts uh, the military, either directly uh, or uh, uh, as a result of, of, of their, their activities. Um, right. Many people know that the, I'm sorry, go ahead. More, more strategic in the sense of looking at the pattern, the broad pattern and how it, the implications and right. where, where right. you might find leverage points also in order to make a difference. I would just like to say, some people might not realize that some of your installations are like the size of cities, correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's uh, an, even just uh, south of me is uh, Fort Leonard, Missouri, with uh, well over 12,000 people uh, on the, uh, who are assigned to that installation. The city right outside of it is uh, St. Roberts, and I think that has a population of something like uh, 8,000 or so. Uh, some of these, these installations are just that. They're miniature cities. They have the same responsibility, have the same issues that you find on any other uh, in, in any other city or municipality. So that's how you you kind of address, when you address crime uh, from the military installation point of view, you're addressing it in, in much the same way that you would uh, in any uh, civilian uh, community. Um, I and and to gear, shift off to a different direction, we were talking about before the show about um, the implications of developing criminal intelligence as a doctrine as the military seeks to help um, countries who are trying to rebuild, such as Iraq and other other countries in the world, develop their policing. And so if you have this this formalized systematic doctrine, you could help educate the newly emerging police forces in developing or are rebuilding nations, in, in, and that's an advantage, correct? It is. It is. The, uh, the part of it, is a well, not part of it, but a great, a great piece of it deals with your individual perception as well as the the military mindset when they uh, or the military police mindset when they go into um, these sometimes war torn countries, uh, some places that that were devastated by some other type of uh, occurrence, and they're trying to return uh, that community or that that area. Normalcy, whatever normal uh, looked like. Some of these areas never had any kind of formalized law enforcement. It was the rural law that was uh, perhaps tribal or something along those lines. Uh, because of that, you may end up starting from the ground up, showing the uh, establishing what is uh, considered a, a lawful or not lawful within that particular uh, community, and then building. Building on that, you build your police force. You give them the, the training, um, the 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 infrastructure that that might need to be there for the courts or for uh, the the corrections. Uh, you provide that to them, or you enhance whatever is already there. Uh, the training that our military police receive and the skills that they develop and the experience that they have in CONUS, the Continental United States Lower 48 and the uh, Hawaii and Alaska translates very nicely uh, over to uh, the OCONUS or the OCS uh, areas uh, of operation, particularly after a some sort of a uh, uh, combat operations. After the after the fight is over, after the war is done, after uh, the the conflicts are, are finished, somehow or another, you have to get back to building uh, that that city or that uh, that that area of operation back to their level of, of normalcy. And uh, without imposing a martial law, you can apply uh, some of the existing police or law enforcement uh, activities and standards uh, that were already there and, and shore those up. Now, certainly, we would be looking at uh, the interaction of the military police from a Western point of view, which is somewhat limiting. The, the idea of uh, shame and embarrassment as opposed to legal, illegal, uh, there's, it, it, there's a white gulf there. There are some uh, countries to where it's, uh, who believe or who ascribe the fact that it's okay to lie uh, or 
be untruthful to law enforcement. It's an accepted practice. However, it's not an accepted practice to lie or be untruthful in a court of law. Uh, that's something that we'll, we tend to have to struggle with. We expect people, uh, we anticipate that they may, but we expect uh, people when confronted with the truth to either confess to it or admit to it or recognize the same uh, values of, uh, of, of integrity that, that, that we have or that we ascribe to. That offers, that offers a little bit of a challenge when you're uh, trying to transfer your, our, our Western ideology, our military mindset as far as law enforcement is concerned into uh, a different theater of operations. Uh, but at the baseline of it, uh, returning to normalcy, what is the rule of law? What, is, uh, what was the rule of law before these activities? And then returning uh, that community or that, that, uh, that city to this normal standard rule of law. Kind of a tough road to hoe, uh, but that's, the, that's not only the military's uh, uh, responsibility in some cases, and that's kind of their goal. And Modi does it better, perhaps, than the military police. Um, and so I wanted to talk a bit about, <clears throat> you, talk, you spoke about the, in the beginning of the show about the different missions of crime analysis and, in, and intelligence analysis, just calling them two different things. There are more definitions, and that's one of the issues. We have different definitions depending on who you talk to, um, or criminal intelligence analysis, or as Jerry Radcliffe's calls all of it together, crime intelligence analysis. But and from my point of view, yes, there's a different purpose. If you're local level law enforcement, just like the military police, you might want to know on a base when, you know, what's the next trend or are um, bur burglaries trending upward or whatever. But you also um, have your investigators doing some cases where they need some telephone toll analysis, something like that, or, or your higher-level felony crimes where they're looking at different installations for crime problems and they're, they're working on a big um, case so that they can present it to show that there's, there's some kind of organized criminal activity, which would be equivalent to what the FBI does. Um, but all of this information, to keep it too siloed, it's important to silo your mi Your missions are different. And so often I don't think um, in, in some of the efforts to help people become aware of intelligence-led policing directed from the federal level, um, the federal level's not understanding the local level's mission. So they, they kind of don't see crime mapping and statistical analysis and reading MOs of crime reports and the gathering on the street as, as, as important. And they also don't actually have that data. Every, little, every police agency is separate, and we don't send the data anywhere nationally. We have our own little, it's like having our own little silo. Um, so perhaps you can talk about how you see the integration of different types of analysis in your doctrine. And also, um, I am really thinking when I saw your your work um, that you're going to be ahead of us because there's that standardization in the military police in the different three levels to the standardization of gathering data, the ability to analyze it, the ability to understand the process and articulate it, that this could actually become a benchmark for law enforcement in this country because we don't have anyone to be leading that. And I'd like you to speak on that, if you could. Well, uh, the, to begin with, with the, the different uh, standards and how uh, the military does it as opposed to how the civilian agencies do it, I, I quite agree. There's well over or nearly 18,000 different law enforcement agencies across the United States, and not all of them have a crime analyst or a criminal intelligence analyst or something along those lines. Um, as a result, not all of them do any type of, of uh, either strategic or tactical or operational or uh, long-range uh, uh, analysis of what's happening in their area. On the military side of the house, Similarly, there, not every military installation has a trained uh, or qualified trained uh, uh, crime analyst or criminal policy analyst. As a result, they also may refer or revert back to doing what traditional, and I have air quotes going on, crime analysis was, uh, which was simply collecting up 
that historical data, how many of uh, or how many uh, break-ins or how much damage to private property or, or the, the trending type stuff. Uh, that, while that's important, uh, again, is very vital in the strategic view, it's not It's not necessarily going to tell you who is committing those crimes. So when you're looking at it from uh, a doctoral standpoint, one of the things that I think is important is that you step back and decide uh, or have the decision makers decide what the focus is going to be. If it's long range and tra or changing the direction of, uh, of uh, community's activities uh, or a, a criminal organization's activities, uh, that's one thing. You may be looking at uh, gangs or organized crime moving in or particular type of crime moving in, drug crime or, or uh, uh, some sort of a property crime that, that is moving into an area. You may want to change that. You may want to uh, treat it as you would moles in your yard harden that installation or harden that city, make it less productive for, or less conducive for uh, those types of uh, criminal activities to, to take hold uh, by replacing streetlights, by increasing patrols, by using neighborhood watch, by um, publicizing uh, their broadly these people that you're, you're looking for, persons of interest. You can, from the doctrinal standpoint, that's one way that you could do it. Or if your leadership and the decision makers want to eradicate or eliminate those particular crime elements, you have the option as well. The, the decision is going to be really based, uh, focused on what those decision makers want. Uh, and, and maybe it may be slightly uh, based on what they want at that time. Uh, in the military, uh, kind of an old saying, if you don't like what it is you're doing or the people that you're working with, just wait about three years and you're going to change, or they're going to change. Uh, the expectation is somewhere in the three or four year, three to five year uh, mark that you'll uh, change your duty station and go somewhere else. In the civilian community, that's usually not the case. The sheriff is a sheriff for uh, quite a while if he or she is elected or reelected. The chief of police or the, the uh, head of the uh, emergency services department is usually going to be uh, that director or that head or that chief uh, for a number of years. So there, uh, from that perspective, you have some, uh, the uh, civilian side of the house has uh, a, a little bit more of an advantage. You have some continuity there. It's good continuity. It's great for that community and that, that law enforcement organization and those folks who are looking to make a change because you know, staying uh, true to whatever the intent was of that that leadership. Uh, if it's not good, then of course the, the voters have an opportunity to hopefully to uh, to replace that person with somebody who has a, a different view. In the military, the standardization that you had mentioned is top-down driven. The folks at the top really want uh, crime to to be eradicated, crime to be stopped, uh, our purpose to be uh, secure on the installation and off the installation our properties to be secure, our resources to be secure. If you have that as an overarching picture, the doctrine piece falls into place very, very easily and very, very quickly. And in the military, that's one of the advantages you have there. It may be top-driven, so regardless of who's in the middle, they're still going to be answerable to somebody or several somebodies at the top who are pressing down um, these uh, regulations, whatever they might be, and trying to enforce them. Uh, and then speaking further to standardization, it would be useful if law enforcement uh, in the civilian community could could uh, react or have the same uh, standardization policies as the military uh, in some aspects. I mentioned before we have a third, uh, the Army at least has a third S75 where you have some standardized reports. The Army also has a thing called the uh, DA Form 2023, which is your foreign statement, uh, which is, again, the narrative taken by either a victim witness or a suspect. And that's a blank page with some uh, biographical heading on the front and, and uh, some uh, oath or affirmation information on the reverse, standardized and, and expected. No matter what investigation you're looking at, you're going to find those two forms, typically those two forms, and maybe a couple of others uh, throughout the military. 
throughout the Army. Our other agencies, our sister agencies, the uh, Air Force uh, Office of Special Investigation, OSI, or the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, that you might find at uh, the Navy and Marine uh, stations, as well as the Marine uh, Criminal Investigation Division, Marine CID, uh, the Air Force uh, Security Police, and even to uh, the Coast Guard. They all have very similar standardized practices. So if you looked at it globally, from the military standpoint, globally, you will always be able to find uh, a form or, or several forms that have the critical information that you're looking for and that can be accessed by uh, those who need to know it and, uh, and used for criminal intelligence, for crime analysis, for uh, criminal investigative analysis, for a variety of things. Um, on the civilian side of the house, perhaps it's not quite so, but I think it's getting better. I know in the state of Missouri they have uh, the mules, which is uh, oh, the, uh, I've, I've forgotten what that acronym stands for, but I know that it deals with a standardized reporting system for the uh, law enforcement agencies. The uh, uh, National Crimes Investigations Computer, NCIC, I don't recall, uh, I believe that's the correct designation for NCIC, uh, you have some reporting requirements that are there at the civilian level, at, at various levels within the civilian uh, law enforcement community that goes higher, typically to the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations. They, at the top, if, if you will, have an opportunity to collate this information, uh, to, to take a, a hard look at it. But typically, again, that's not on an individual basis. That's very much strategic. And so while the information is useful that they will generate, it, it may not be as useful for the smaller departments or rural departments or uh, the agencies that, that don't have that particular crime or those, those uh, crime series going on in, in their area. Uh, so standardization, a good thing. It would be great if all of the civilian uh, law enforcement agencies were able to come on board. Now, uh, just one more thing on standardization. With the advent of the technology that we have now and some of the other stuff that's coming along, um, and uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to name drop, but uh, I will. Uh, I2M S Notebook, uh, RF Flow by uh, Roger Farba, uh, uh, some of the other predictive an uh, analytic software that's there. Each agency, if you have that, it will speak to another agency that has that. And so you can very quickly, uh, even though you don't have a standardized practice, very quickly share uh, that type of information with another agency if you can get over the hurdle of uh, that stovepiping or that isolationism or those silos that, uh, uh, that, that may have been created. Well, the text analytics software company that I've been an advisor for, um, IX Reveal, has where if you had this um, text analytics software and you designed queries, um, and they could be pretty complicated. They're, they're not really called queries. Um, I forgot what they're called, actually. I should know. Concepts that you could have, like a concept for the Bloods gang, and you could share it with different agencies so they could search their data. And so at, what you're saying is the new advances in some sorts of interoperability between software um, could help facilitate the sharing that we're not that we can't maybe have all our databases talking right yet, but we can have some of those shared tools talking or helping us find yeah. things that are useful and, and and bottom line make an impact if our decision makers use the information, the intelligence that will make an impact on the criminal environment, which um, I, we're, we're running over a little, but I'd just like to ask you one more question about what your view is on intelligence-led policing and its future. Well, uh, very quickly, I think that uh, ILP intelligence-led policing is uh, a great concept. I think it's a nice, uh, a very solid starting place. I don't know that it's, and I think Jerry Redcliffe would agree, it isn't the silver bullet. It's a great place to start and to grow from. And for those uh, decision makers and those people who are involved in, uh, in, in, in perhaps a changing policy or whatnot, knowing or even reading his book 
would be a great start. But knowing and applying uh, intelligence led policing concepts would be very, very beneficial and, and very quickly help standardize and get uh, other agencies, uh, state, local, federal, uh, maybe even tribal agencies, on the same sheet of music making the, the concept or making the goal of uh, administrating justice that much easier. And, and very quickly, to, for your listeners, if they go to the IACA, the International Association of Crime Analysts website, they can find a listing of the various resources that uh, I've mentioned and, and that uh, you're familiar with as well. They're on that uh, website. Right, right. Well, and I'm glad that you found the IACA so valuable in, in some of the work you've done. Um, I um, really appreciate you coming on the show, and I would hope to have you back as a guest. I know you, there's so much more we could say, but um, we only have this much time. And I'd like to thank the listeners for joining us on Analyst Corner and ask them to stay tuned for more expert guests, maybe not as often as I used to have them, but I, I plan on continuing the show, so if anyone ha would like to be a guest, they could contact me at analystcorner.com at gmail.com, and, and we'll be talking about best practices in crime and intelligence analysis and policing. I really do think that um, this concept and what I'm seeing from the development in the military is encouraging because as when I was a new crime analyst in 1997, I could not find anything, hardly anything. The Alpha Group was doing training, but there wasn't much written on the field that was accessible now with the Internet. The different the two associations, the International Association of Crime Analysts, the International Association of Law Enforcement Intelligence Analysts, have put out a lot through the years, but there are many other publications, and I appreciate the work you've done to advance the profession. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. And um, so take care and stay safe, okay? Bye -bye. Thank you.